a listener production. This is From Zero, conversations with business founders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost a billion dollars annually. People ask me all the time, how do we start the business? And now I want to turn the tables. In this episode, I speak with Bruce Buchanan, CEO of AdTech Juggernaut, Rocked. You know, when you simplify things and you really focus on the core economics of what you're trying to do, you can actually achieve amazing outcomes, even for a startup business. Born in Western Sydney, Bruce was raised by his single mum, Linda. But when Bruce was 12, Linda was diagnosed with leukaemia. With their finances already stretched and Linda unable to work, Bruce created two of his own businesses to help support the family. From mowing lawns to fixing shelves, Bruce did just about anything to help bring in some extra cash for his mum and his younger sister. Although Bruce's efforts worked to bring in extra money for the family, Linda's health was one thing that was outside of his control. Later on in high school, you know, had some difficult times. My mum got sick with cancer and she passed away when I was 16 and I was sort of thrust then into having, sort of taking that curiosity and natural instinct into business into then having to do a bunch of things just to make sure I stayed and completed high school. And so that ended up honing the skills from what was a curiosity and an interesting and a passion to something that became a necessity. My grandmother used to do a market, like a flea market type uh, thing. And so she used to take me along to that. And I was fascinated by the concept of buying and selling things from a very young age and, you know, ways to make money and the way business and economies worked. And so there was a whole bunch of that instilled in me very young. And then I was always entrepreneurial. I'm, I'm very much an explorer from a very young age is probably the way to describe me. Uh, my father was always someone that enjoyed, you know, the outdoors and hiking and things like that. And from a young age, I was always trying to work out how business worked. And, you know, from buying and selling things to starting my first business is very young. I started doing a newspaper round very young. And so that's a lot of my childhood is exploration and business is probably the what I would describe most of my, my time. So you, as you said, your mum tragically passed away when you're when you're only 16 how did that how did that impact you your development uh your, your schooling uh obviously a super important part of your life is it something that that really sort of sh- shook you back then or how did you how did you cope yeah it was tough i mean my mum started getting sick she was doing um she's doing a degree in nuclear medicine and in the early days is before anyone knew the problems with radiation causing cancer. And I, I, we think that's what ended up, you know, resulting in her getting leukemia. Uh, but from age 12 to age 16, she was sick with cancer. And so the hardest part about that, she was a single mom at that stage and I had a sister. And so I think the hardest thing about being that sort of age and dealing with those sorts of things is the, you know, how quickly you grow up. I was sort of forced to start looking after my sister at a very young age and I think what that level of responsibility is a double-edged sword, obviously. It teaches you that adversity and that 
responsibility means you're thrust into learning and dealing with things way before most people would. But because you're thrust into and have to deal with those things early and they're tough and challenging, you learn a lot and you learn a lot not just in terms of how to deal with them, but you learn a lot about how to handle adversity. And both those lessons, I think, definitely shaped me later on in life. Bruce spent his high school years at a practical school before going on to study engineering at the University of New South Wales. But almost immediately, Bruce found an opportunity to pursue his passion for business. A family friend had set up a computer design company, which Bruce invested in. He'd end up working in the operations of that business for the next three years. It was a great success. It let Bruce buy a home and even lead a really comfortable life. But always intuitive, Bruce started to identify some issues with the business including client habits, lots of competition, and the disappearance of the market as deal-breaking limitations. Bruce would eventually sell his stake before stepping away from the company entirely. And by then, he returned to university to study an MBA, and this time to fulfill an even more ambitious vision. I had this vision and passion of trying to work out how big businesses worked, and so I I actually started at the Australian Graduate School of Management, ended up finishing at UCLA um, in California, but started at UNSW and loved the experience. Actually, just the time to stop and reflect and talk to other people with about similar challenges was great and really enjoyed the two years at business school. Uh, and would thoroughly recommend if someone's build a business and wanting time to reflect and think and do, you know, study some of the failings and successes and why things worked and why things didn't work and organizational theory and operational design and marketing and all the things that you do when you're an entrepreneur, actually struggling with them for a few years and then actually going and having the opportunity to learn the theory behind it was really, really rewarding. And I got a lot more out of that educational experience than I ever had in any of them, any of the educational experience I had previously, because I didn't have any tangible reference frame when I was, you know, when you when you're doing the uh, when you when you're normally learning about something, you learn about it before you actually do any practicality. But the concept of having practical experience and then being able to reflect on it was great. Halfway through that experience, BCG would come out to campus, and they I'd never heard of management consulting at the time. I didn't even know it was an, a profession. And they came and pitched um, about, you know, what they did for big businesses in Australia at the time. And the company, BCG had actually bought out a company called PSEC, which was Papa Carter Evans Coop, which is why BCG became the dominant consulting firm in Australia, not because BCG was bigger than McKinsey globally. It's just they bought the preeminent or they, they merged with the preeminent strategy firm in Australia. So they were the dominant ones in the Australian marketplace. And so I was fascinated the fact that you know, CEOs and board members and these big businesses, once again, to the big business theme, would engage a company to come and help them think through some of these big problems. And given I was passionate about learning how big businesses worked, I really took the BCG opportunity as an opportunity to continue sort of the educational journey uh, that I originally set on from a business school perspective. And BCG was great. They really did offer me the opportunity to continue that development and education and they spent a lot of time on you know knowledge-based learning giving back growing and at the time it was a great experience and my first case actually uh, when I was a summer intern so in between my two years was actually working for Qantas 
And so I got this experience of working on marketing problem for Qantas and a supply chain problem for Qantas, which I found fascinating and uh, thought that, you know, doing that for a few years would be a great way for me to really round out my skill set. And so I decided to sign on for them. Uh, they also financially, um, you know, make make it fairly compelling. They pay the rest of your business school fees and, you know, give you a sign-on bonus and all those sorts of things. But the real interest for me was the the passion about um, learning how big businesses worked. And so I signed on to them uh, after, after doing the summer intern with them uh, for a full-time position once I'd finished at UCLA. I think a lot of people listening probably wouldn't be super familiar with what management consultants actually do. Uh, it's, obviously, it's a great – it sounds great and you're working with super senior people, but can you just go through – you're a 25-year-old out of, out of UCLA and you're working with some pretty – big hitters what are you doing so you, you rock up there with your laptop and you so what do you do as a consultant when you when you're working with Qantas or whoever else you work with back then um day to day I think there's lots of different experiences right so I don't think it's a uniform experience, set of experiences that every consultant does and I, and I think a lot of consultants end up doing process and cost piece of the puzzle I was fortunate enough and because I was passionate about consumer behavior and commercial problems marketing um, and brands that I got into the commercial side of problems. And so one of my first projects when I started back uh, full-time was actually working for Qantas on a couple marketing programs, one of which was um, redesigning the Qantas Frequent Flyer program to deal with low-cost carriers uh, or the threat of low-cost carriers. And I spent um, uh, I spent three, six months um, redesigning the program changing the way that rewards and building lifetime recognition and building the tier programs and upgrades and all sorts of weird and wonderful things. But the, the objective was to make them a more powerful competitive weapon um, in the domestic market because of the competitive threat they were having. And it ended up, you know, that sort of project ended up being so successful that, that you know, that they shifted quite a number of points of share away from ANSET and that was one of the reasons why ANSET went under. And so you work on projects like that where you're actually the, doing the analytics and the theory and the, the detailed work behind um, what's actually going to make something solve a, a problem like that. And you bring together data analytics, high-level objectives, uh, consumer research, uh, market dynamics and market mapping, um, and lots of cluster and data analysis to come up with what is the right answer. And then it ultimately you're producing a business case for something often. So it's about what is the cost and benefits of doing a particular thing and a recommendation based on the costs and benefits of doing a particular thing. But I end up in weird situations. I did work for Commonwealth Bank. I did work up in Asia. I then, uh, BCG then had a... Um, like a top 1% program where you could go work in any project anywhere in the world and I ended up then going to the US. And I found myself in places like I was in the boardroom of US Steel when they were dealing with steel tariffs and, you know, a whole bunch of really interesting things after 9-11. And so you find yourself in, in really unique, broad set of situations where you're deep into the business very quickly and providing advice and guidance based on the data and facts. And it gives you exposure to enormous number of uh, interesting industries and enormous number of people and really complex problems. And you're surrounded by incredibly smart people. And so 
that's really what I was doing on a day-to-day basis. I don't know if that's typical. I don't know if all, I don't know if all consultants find themselves in those sorts of problems, but that was my experience anyway. Interesting. I think one of your clients uh, was a guy called Alan Joyce who who had worked at Ansett uh, when you were with oil and stuff, and then I think he roughed up at Qantas and was I think Alan was told to start a competitor to, to Virgin, uh, which of course become Jetstar eventually. And I think probably because because of your success in the loyalty business. Alan got you to write the original Jetstar business plan. Airlines are probably the most complex business, or one of the most complex businesses on earth. Um, what did you know about running airlines that you could even start writing a business plan on, on something like that? Yeah, well, I'd never met Alan actually when I started work on the, <laughs> on the Jetstar uh, business case, interestingly enough. Uh, 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 but because of the work in loyalty and because Jeff Dixon uh, that previously was running the commercial side of Qantas, uh, was heavily involved in all of that work. And when he became CEO and had this problem to deal with, and he bought the Impulse business uh, when they went belly up as part of the Ansett Virgin Impulse shakeout, he'd asked me to um, come back and lead the team because he, he, he had the insight or the foresight uh, to realize that the reason a lot of low-cost carrier businesses had failed was on the commercial side that the brands weren't separated enough and the proposition wasn't clear enough for consumers and then they ended up competing with each other and so he wanted someone on the commercial side to come and do that and so alan was the lead client actually and i was the lead on the consulting side and so uh, jeff had set this team up and um alan myself were working in the trenches day-to-day writing the business case and so we spent I came back from the US, uh, back into Sydney, and then went straight into this and was doing, um, had a team of, you know, three or four people on the consulting side, and they ended up getting a team of about six or seven on the on the corner side. And we'd meet every day and we worked through the plans. And ultimately, it ended up, uh, we went to the board and asked them for a billion dollars to start the airline. They said yes. Um, and then Alan and Jeff then said, well, Given you're so familiar with the work you've done on the commercial side, you stay for six months and help set it set it up. And that six months turned into ten years, and ultimately then ended up being group CEO and bringing the bits of Jetstar that Peter Gregg had started and the bits of Jetstar that Alan had been running, bring them all together under a common sort of Jetstar umbrella. Then uh, through that journey, so what, what was it like? So as you as you said, you, you wrote the business plan, and they must have been pretty impressed because obviously got you in as effectively Alan's CCO. Um, what was it like in the early days of the early years of Jetstar? Uh, I think you had a, a pretty strong competitor in, in Virgin from, from memory back then. Um, obviously, airlines are a difficult environment at the best of times. Uh, how much autonomy did you guys have when you were starting Jetstar and, and what was it like? Yeah, look, it was great. Working for Alan was fantastic. He was a great boss and we had a very small, cohesive team to start with. Um, it, was a, it was a great experience. And, um, you know, we made some good decisions. We, we put the head office in Melbourne, so away from the sort of broader mothership of Qantas. And so it gave us a lot of independence based in Burke Street, building up this business. Uh, and so we spent a lot of time uh, making sure that the business was set up to achieve the brand promise and achieve the commercial proposition that was, you know, this this completely independent business that we didn't want to be delivered or to feel like it was a Qantas light type proposition. So the camaraderie of the team was great. It was challenging. I mean, one of the things that's really hard to create a business within a business or even a business owned by a business 
is you're constantly fighting battles in terms of uh, you know the the way the mothership works versus the way this what's the right proposition for this business. And so we knew from the work in the business case that you know ninety nine percent of these businesses had failed, almost all of them uh, for one of two reasons: either they ended up cannibalizing the core, um, so they didn't get the brand proposition right, or they ended up not getting the cost on the, the, the customer proposition, right? So it just wasn't economical. Um, and it was very easy when you're starting a business to go, I'll just take that from the, the core, we'll take this from the core. The hardest thing was we actually created everything from scratch. You know, Qantas would use Telstra, we'd use Optus. You know, they had their own call center, we'd have our own call center, we had our own everything. And that was hard because you, you're building up reservation systems and you're building up websites and payment systems, you're doing banking relationships, everything all the way through. Um, and there was a lot of fights. But in the end, Qantas learned a lot. You know, even though they were one of the largest merchant, uh, t- uh, merchant takers from a um, uh, credit card facility, we ended up getting better deals. And even though they were one of Telstra's largest clients, we got a better deal off Optus. So there's this real eye-opener around, you know, when you simplify things and you really focus on the core economics of what you're trying to do, you can actually achieve amazing outcomes even for a startup business. And so that, that ended up, a, a lot of learnings ended up going back across into Qantas in terms of, uh, in terms of what ended up happening in Jetstar. In 2008, after a meteoric rise, Bruce was named as the CEO of Jetstar. Bruce had been instrumental in building one of the most successful airlines of all time from the ground up. Bruce was seeing the impact Jetstar was able to have in developing countries like Myanmar. The discount airline was able to support the tourism industry and fuel the surrounding economy. But as the Qantas brand remained the core focus of the wider business, Bruce once again noticed a ceiling for his aspirations. So in 2012, he stepped away from Jetstar and prepared to face his next great challenge. Bruce came across a couple of business founders named Justin Viles and Ben Volts. Justin was one of the first ever employees at Google in Australia, and Ben was a director at the digital advertising firm at Conion. Justin and Ben had come together a couple of years earlier to create a business called Rock Live. Rock Live happened to be doing something really similar to what Bruce wanted to create next. One of Justin's things is he'd, he'd revolutionised or thought about the early things of revolutionising advertising on a ticketing provider called Ticketek in Australia, um, and he'd been given a contract to do that on the on the confirmation page. And I got thinking about my vision and what he'd done on the confirmation page, and thought these two could go together. Now the problem was the Rocklight business. That was like you know five percent of the revenue at the time, and ninety five percent was like email marketing and affiliate marketing and all this other lead generation, all this other stuff. So the construct of that was I had a company in Singapore and we ended up buying the Rock Live business and, and Ben and Justin then came in as equal shareholders in the new business, which became Rock. So, uh, you know, in December 2012, we've, we used the Rock business to buy Rock Live and the new Rocked vision was born. And it was sort of a, a bit of uh, what Justin's idea had been from how to transform advertising and revenue generation in e-commerce with my sort of vision and experience from Jetstar got merged together to create this 
this um, rock rock business. And and Ben left fairly soon afterwards out of the business, so was not that involved in it. Uh, but Justin and myself stayed involved for quite a number of years trying to th- nut that out. And the first step was we ended up cutting off about 80% of the revenue that Rock Live was doing, you know, all the email marketing stopped, affiliate marketing stopped, all that sort of stuff that they were doing. And we really focused in on the e-commerce stuff. And therefore, we're essentially building from pretty much scratch from day one to say, look, this is a problem we want to solve. We've got this one client, Ticket Tech, that gives us something to go by. And by the way, they're going to save us a lot of time, which was the reason why I ended up doing that deal with Justin, because that that trust and that initial client gave us the you know gave us the initial traction that made it much faster for me to start to realize the vision for Rocked. The first product was really this product, Rocked Ads, which we, we had on the confirmation page of Ticket Tech, which meant as someone did an e-commerce transaction, just as they completed their transaction, we were like, we would present them what we thought the one or two things that they'd likely want to do next. And so, you know, your business was a great example, Luxury Escapes, by the way. Here's, um, you just bought it, tickets to... Coachella or some concert or festival, you might also be interested in going in a luxury escape while you're doing this or for another experience because you're the type of person that wants those experiences. And so that uh, that was the initial proposition and brands like yours would then pay to advertise um, in a very similar way to Google uh, does for uh, buying search keywords, you'd, you'd essentially buy access to customers and different audience segments that worked for you and you'd bid against other businesses that also wanted to access the same customers. And the internal partner would also incorporate their, or the internal messages that the partner wanted to run would also be incorporated in that decisioning process. So they might want to say, download my app or sign up to my loyalty program or sign up to my Cobra and credit card at the same time as, you know, are you interested in a luxury escape? And we would power all those messages on the confirmation page. And that's that was the start of Rock, was really... Uh, solving those advertising problems on the confirmation page and sort of unlocking the content that used to be locked away on that page and getting rid of display ads and getting rid of the clutter, getting rid of the social plugins and survey plugins and all the other stuff and just cleaning up the page a lot so that you could focus on the one or two messages that were relevant for that customer, which which meant it was much more effective for the advertiser, but also much more effective for the businesses on the key messages, the key things they wanted to get the client to do, the, the customer to do as well. Was there ever a single client that you, you signed that was almost a turning point that you got, whether it was eBay or whoever, who who took you to that next level? Yeah, the biggest win um, that probably was a transformational win was Ticketmaster. Uh, there's a guy called Frank Gutierrez uh, who was the SVP of BD, and I was introduced to him through a connection through YPO, uh, which was very fortuitous because I had no networks in, <laughs> in the US. Um, and after about a year of evaluation with Ticketmaster and Live Nation, they decided uh, if we could produce a, a million-dollar check as a sort of sign of how confident we were the product would work, they would give us a go. Uh, and it was it was an interesting risk at the time, but we backed ourselves and you know, within two or three months, we'd more than made back all of that money. But it, it um, at the time, it was a big shift in, in where the business had gone. So we'd started talking to them in 2013 and 2014. I think in uh, early 2015 or thereabouts, we launched. Um, and that was a real turning point because then we were able to have massive volume globally. Uh, we had a 
and not just an Australian uh, tier one client, but we had a global tier one client that made it much easier from that point onwards. Uh, up until then, we'd done some interesting work with eBay, but it was a bit on the periphery and they'd never really gone whole hog with us, but Ticketmaster went whole hog with us and, and that was a real turning point for the business. Well, I think within, I think over, over the years, we've talked about, I guess, the core, the regional business, which is sort of the, the ad serving business, but I think you've evolved significantly past that and become much more of a tech business where you provide lots of tools to e-commerce in a similar way to Shopify, but, but slightly different. Um, can you, can you talk about the product evolution called over the last five years since you signed Ticketmaster and how you've sort of transitioned from a kind of ad business to more of a technology business? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple of interesting challenges, one of which is the scalability of the global volume we deal with was quite tough. You know, the, the original technology and architecture we built was not built, it was built at Australian sort of scale. Um, and so we had a lot of work to do to build things that could handle the level of performance and scalability that we deal with today. Um, so there's a lot of transformation on things like the data streaming platforms and, you know, even things like, you know, the way we deploy our CD, CICD pipeline, our surveillance and monitoring and all those sorts of things, security, every all the sort of core platform infrastructure stuff has been a huge investment that's really been part of the sort of core of getting to where we, we've gotten to. From a product perspective, what we've done is really focused on rather than building out more capability, we've been very religious about staying focused to our core vision and mission, which is a very narrow area when you think about it. All we're really interested in is the transaction moment and connecting businesses. Our secret source is, you know, we're the trusted intermediary and we can power the relevancy for a customer when you when you need to look across multiple sets of data and multiple sets of information. This is across most companies. And, you know, an American Express is not going to give that data to Ticketmaster and Ticketmaster is not going to give their data to American Express, but we can be the player that sits in the middle and make sure that the customer gets the right, uh, the most relevant experience and that benefits both of them. Um, and so a lot of our tech build has been how do we get really good at making sure we solve every little piece of every component of that transaction moment. So all the actions that you need to do when you, the payments, the shipping options, the newsletter sign up, um, the insurance sale, the merchandising, the advertising, um, all of our efforts and work has been focused on making sure we can solve all of those problems. And we're still we're still only probably really 20% of the way there when I think about the economic impact that we're having on clients. We've still got a long way to go. Like even though we are growing incredibly fast and some of our products are doing incredibly well, there's a big part of our ultimate vision still in its infancy. So the product evolution uh, really focuses around how do we make sure every single thing that happens in an e-commerce transaction uh, rock can solve for you in a way that's relevant for uh, a customer? And we do it enterprise level and we do it in a way that means that you can harness your data and your partner's data to give the, your customers the best experience. People describe you as the unicorn founder and that you, you're this incredible operator from, from Jetstar to, to Rocked, obviously. But you've also been incredible at raising money. And I think you did your Series A for Rocked 
way back in 2013, pretty much single-handedly. I think he raised eight mil from people like Rupert Murdoch and Square Peg and Greg Roebuck, who founded car sales. And then I think he raised a 26 million Series B a few years later. How were you able to raise such significant amounts of money for what was pretty early stage pre-revenue, but pretty early stage, pretty small business. Um, how, how do you sort of attribute success in, in sort of raising capital as well as operating businesses? I think, yeah, I mean, uh, well, there's two answers to that. I think the economic model we have is very, very good. And so I think, you know, that that that's attractive to investors. But I think ultimately, if you look at the early days, most investors will tell you a big piece, a big, big piece of why they invest in a business is around people. And so if you've got a proven track record, you've got a massive head start. And so I think in the early days, a lot of people, although they like business idea and they understand the vision and they could see the rationale, and the, the economics, a big piece of what they're doing is backing individuals. And, you know, a lot of startup entrepreneurs don't have a track record. And so I was very fortunate in that, I've proven myself in building out the Jetstar business that I could scale, build a business to quite a large size. You know, Jetstar had close to $4 billion in revenue when I stepped out of it. And so that's, you know, 14,000 direct, direct employees. And so I think that gives people a lot of confidence. And I've done that at a very young age. And, and I think ultimately, if you got to the heart of a lot of investors' decision, a big, big piece of why they invest in businesses based on people. So that was a big tick. And, you know, like a Series E, which is closed, I mean, it, it, it's less about that dimension and it becomes much more about the core economics. I mean, this year we'll do 350 million US in that business and a business is growing incredibly fast. That's got massive profit margins and, you know, a huge market opportunity and has proven product market fit. So the numbers speak for itself at that point. You know, you don't have to, it's less about the people and team at that point. It's much more about the fundamentals of the business. The numbers behind Rock's incredible growth speak for themselves. Over the past eight years, Rock has worked with over 3,000 brands, handled over 5 billion transactions. And in 2021, its employee count grew from 240 to over 320. But Bruce has been here before leading a high-growth company into the next stage of development. Will this be another case of Bruce's high ambitions reaching their ceiling? Or will Rock to provide a platform for Bruce to continue pursuing his next great vision? I'm still passionate about achieving the ultimate, solving that problem that, you know, how do we create this economic platform for change? And there's still a bunch of big things we have to do over the next two or three years to really uh, take businesses where we may be driving 20 or 30% change in their economic state, which is still big. Uh, and we love that, but we want to get to a point where we can double the economics of the clients we work with, and so that's fairly audacious. But we've still got a fair way to go on that on that plan and mission. And so, I think the next few years will see me focused on that. Uh, we've got a year coming up in twenty twenty three as our current plan, barring no crazy COVID related. Um, issues or other things that happen between now and then <laughs> um but yeah that's the focus there's not really I, I haven't planned out the next part of my career i'm really passionately still very committed and focused on seeing this one through and there's still a, a long way to go and what we're doing at the moment and that was bruce buchanan ceo of rock and you've been listening to from zero with me adam schwab our producers are lindsey green and Ed Gooden. For more episodes, search From Zero Podcast.
listener.